Good morning. Thank you, Kathy. Good morning. <laughs> we did so well. Who was here a few weeks ago when we gave a good morning uh, for months ago? Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. It's uh, April 24th, 2019. I think four weeks in a row I've joked, but I think this time spring finally has sprung, so we will be into May next uh, week, and uh, we will welcome... Uh, uh, Professor Sidney Finkelstein, actually, from the Tuck Business School, um, to, to speak with us and then get back to our residents. But we have a special day today, um, and as part of our advocacy theme, welcoming um, Mark Del Monte, we are going to award our La Monica Advocacy Award today, which we have done at other times with the other graduating resident awards. But uh, I want to... Um, I think in keeping with, with the theme of the day, Steve is going to introduce our La Monica Award winner. But the La Monica Award, Advocacy Award, if you don't know his name, for Tony La Monica, a social worker here at Chad who exemplified the spirit of advocacy in her work with families and with um, our residents, including myself and, and others who have been residents here. So it's given in recognition of the central role advocacy plays in the career of a pediatrician. We are privileged to see the details of children's and families' lives. We get to share in the inherent resiliency of childhood, but also see some of its most difficult struggles and the challenges that kids confront. We see the human face of systems that don't always work and of larger societal injustices and inequities. The award is given to that resident who best exemplifies the spirit of advocacy, which is, I put on the screen, speaking for those whose voice is not heard. So Dr. Chapman is going to uh, announce this year's winner and introduce our Grand Round speaker. Thanks, Keith. So um, this year's recipient of um, the uh, La Monica Advocacy Award has been an advocate for her patients in clinic on the child protection team, testifying for legislation in Concord, or meeting with senators in Washington, D.C. So please join me in congratulating this year's La Monica Award Advocacy winner, Dr. Angela Doswell. <laughs> pound for pound, the most effective child advocate in the state of New Hampshire. Did we surprise you, Angela? A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> So it gives me great pleasure to introduce uh, Mark Del Monte. Um, Mark uh, serves as interim CEO and executive vice president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Mark leads a strong team which serves 67,000 pediatricians, pediatric medical subspecialists, and pediatric surgical specialist members. Prior to this role, Mark served as the AAP's chief deputy and senior vice president for advocacy and external affairs where he directed the organization's communication and advocacy efforts. Prior to joining the AAP in 2005, Mark served as Director of Policy and Government Affairs for the AIDS Alliance for Children, Youth, and Families, a national organization advocating for children and families with HIV-AIDS. Before moving to Washington, D.C., Mark worked as a lawyer in his home state of California, providing direct legal services to HIV-positive, low-income children and families. 
Marcus spent his career working tirelessly and effectively on behalf of children, and he's one of those who must, makes you proud to be a pediatrician because it's in our DNA to do the oh, same. Oh, Mark. Nice. Thank you very much. Thank you. Wow. Thank you very much. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming out on um, uh, early morning to listen to a lawyer at Grand Rounds. I realize that's not always the, the usual uh, for these kinds of talks. I do have data. It's Grand Rounds, so I, there will be slides, charts, and graphs uh, just to and keep in the tradition. But I'm here uh, to thank you as an initial matter uh, for the work that you do every day. It, it is, it's incredibly exciting for me to get out of either the headquarters of AAP in Itasca, Illinois, or the Washington, D.C. office uh, in, in Washington uh, to, to see real programs at work and to see the innovation and exciting things that are happening, including, um, including advocacy. So congratulations to our award winner already this morning. So that was worth coming out for. Uh, the, the comments uh, in my introduction about advocacy being a part of the DNA of pediatricians uh, I have been doing a lot of thinking and, and, and reading recently about the history of the Academy of Pediatrics. Uh, I never, I did not see in my career path the idea that I would ever be interim CEO of the AAP, and so you sort of wonder what, what is it uh, is, that the Academy is about and what, what is kind of in the, in the founding story. And it turns out, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but it turns out that the originators of the profession and certainly the founders of the academy always knew that advocacy would be part of the deal. They, they knew it in a way that really is quite amazing, uh, that, that either advocating for science or medical advancement or the well-being of children or social determinants of health, even before that was even a term, or the notion of public health the antecedents of all of these complex concepts that we understand today were really found in the, in, the, in, the, in the origin story of the AAP. And so I think advocacy is baked in. It's not always easy, uh, but it's definitely key. Uh, I have nothing to disclose. I work only for the AAP. Like, like all big organizations, the Academy of Pediatrics has a strategic plan. And in that strategic plan, the board spends time thinking, the board of directors spend some time thinking about the course and trajectory of the academy uh, as we roll forward, and thinking about kind of the core strengths of what is this organization of 67,000 pediatricians, pediatric medical subspecialists, and pediatric surgical specialists, and what do we do? And <clears throat> the core work of the AAP is education, policy, and advocacy. So how do we provide the best possible education for our members, whether it's CME or MOC or uh, meetings, policies and, and the like for uh, clinical practice guidelines and tools, et cetera. Developing policy, uh, we uh, just issued a big policy a couple of weeks ago on sugar-sweetened beverages that you may have heard of, calling for the first time uh, for public policy intervention in, in, uh, in nutrition in that way, excise taxes and the like. When AAP makes a policy statement like that, or makes a public statement, for example, that Fisher-Price may consider immediately recalling this inherently dangerous product, uh, that has weight, and that has impact. And the, the importance of the reputation and credibility of the AAP 
comes out of the voices of our members and rises up through our policy statements and then finds its, its expression ultimately in the advocacy work that you do here, that in, in, in you do in the state capitol uh, with the chapter and then at national, at the federal level. So it all rolls up together in sort of a coherent set of work. I think that's important to understand. In 2016, we knew that there would be a new president coming to town, right? That uh, every four years there's an election. And after, every, uh, after eight years, Barack Obama wasn't going to be president anymore. We didn't know who was going to be president of the United States, but we knew what children needed. And so it was our position that children need what they need, no matter who the president is. And so we put out this document called the Blueprint for Children. This is literally a to-do list for every federal agency of the, uh, of the federal government and for Congress in promoting and advancing child health. AAP.org slash blueprint. If you want to read it, it's kind of a manageable book. It's kind of wonky if you're one of those people. Uh, it's really detailed uh, policy prescriptions. Uh, we put this out in Labor Day of 2016, so well before the election, because uh, we didn't want it to, to, to um, be involved in who won. This needed to go out first. Uh, and then the election happened. <laughs> and this is where I sip my coffee, right? Uh, <clears throat> we entered an unprecedented period of child advocacy. Uh, I've been in Wash. I, I've been a lawyer in Washington almost 20 years. Uh, I've been a, a, a child health advocacy person for for at least that amount of time, and I had never seen what was coming, and was have never been involved in the kind of basic defense of core child health programs, sort of metaphysical moments around Medicaid and basic health protections for children, debates about the existence of WIC and SNAP and food stamps and, and other sort of what we think of as bedrock childhood programs, an unprecedented period of advocacy. During this time, I would go and give talks and talk to pediatricians and our members and try to motivate people. And, and so people would, you know, Mark, you know, what are we going to do? How are we going to get through it? And so the metaphor that I developed during that time was whitewater rafting. <laughs> right? If you've been whitewater rafting, I'm sure that happens up here, uh, the number one rule of whitewater rafting is stay in the boat. <laughs> See? So put your helmet, put your life jacket, get your buddy, get your oar, Row when you can. If, it's, if you get through a place where it's kind of calm, you set your course when you can. But when it's rapid, you stay in the boat and you just keep going. And so our metaphor for the first two years of the last Congress was stay in the boat. Stay in the boat together. Stay in the boat for kids. Uh, stay in the boat with a clear focus on what our agenda is and using the blueprint as the guide. So those are not, none of that is, has anything to do with partisan politics. That has to do with policy advocacy. So we stayed in the boat and we, and we kept going. So here's, I'm going to tell you something that you don't know or may not know. In, in, at NCE last year, in fall of 2018, we issued a blue, an update to that blueprint document. Uh, and we just called it the Blueprint for Children 2018 update. Because 
we believed that everyone would have thought that the only thing that we did for the last two years was play defense. That we, would ac- we had accomplished nothing except to survive it and to, res- and to, and to, and to resist efforts for, um, to enact retrogressive policy. And the fact is that exactly the opposite is true. Um, I'm violating every rule of PowerPoint slides here by putting way too many words on the slides of way too much small font. I'm not going to read this whole list, but I, I say this list in this way in order to impress you with the breadth and depth of the successes. Extending CHIP, protecting coverage and access, a new law called the Family First Prevention Services Act, a new law called the Raise Family Caregivers Act, reauthorization of EDI and Children's Hospital GME, new funding for pediatric mental health care access grants, uh, new screening for maternal child depression, maternal uh, depression programs, uh, new opioid legislation, new uh, legislation to improve emergency kits and airplanes. I could go on and on. So in the 2018 update, if you need a lift, <laughs> that's for you. It's eight pages, right? You can read this. But it will embolden you and strengthen you because we can make progress even as we are whitewater rafting. And this, this was not on the news. The, the media cycle and the news cycle and Twitter and all of that other stuff is about who's winning and losing the day. It's, it's not about sort of important, basic uh, uh, legislation moving forward, the legislative process. The, it, the blueprint was issued in, 20, uh, in the fall, as I said, for NCE, but the Congress wasn't over. And so in December, we did even more. We passed a farm bill that, that uh, includes WIC and SNAP. We reauthorized a, new, a prematurity bill that's been the law forever. We put new justice, uh, juvenile justice reforms in the criminal justice reform bill that, uh, that was bipartisan, bicameral, and enthusiastically touted by the White House. We reauthorized a, a nice, small, small but important bill on con- congenital heart disease, in uh, congenital heart defects in kids, uh, new legislation to prevent maternal deaths, extended global uh, emergency plan for AIDS relief that included new maternal child health protections, and, uh, and a global uh, health funding bill that uh, we're very happy has a new emphasis on noncommunicable diseases in children outside the U.S., so I could give a grand rounds on each one of these, but ha- am I starting to convince you that we are making progress, that we, we have been able to achieve important things, and in fact, we stayed in the boat? <laughs> and now it's very hard on Google Images to find an appropriate celebration whitewater rafting picture. <laughs> so uh, uh, there, is, there are aspects of this picture um, that, well, I won't go on, but uh, 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 some Photoshopping has been done. There's a lack of appropriate diversity. And the name of the boat is Wet and Wild, which I have tried to cover with the sign that says we stayed in the boat. But the point is made (laughs) that uh, pediatrician voices aligned in the choir using the tools at the state level, at the federal level, through the Academy of Pediatrics, its chapters, and all of you we're able to make enormous progress, even in the face of tremendous headwinds. I think we need to own this. We need to internalize the power of what we can do when we work together. It's easy to think that, especially in, in pediatrics, that, well, it's the kids, you know, just, if there's, if there's anything left behind after you're finished dealing with the adults, we'll be happy to have it. 
you know, but, uh, but to flip that completely upside down and understand that the, the population that we take care of is the most important. And that when we speak clearly, boldly, loudly, repeatedly, uh, we can make a huge difference. And indeed, we must. So this is the, that, this is the good part of the p- talk. Uh, I'm now going to get into some of the challenges that now, now that I have convinced you about the power of your voice uh, that we should take on next. Okay. We have a new group of people to work with, at least in Washington. Uh, the election of 2018 was quite consequential. Obviously, people know that the, that the um, control of the House switched from Republicans to Democrats. The Republicans held control of the Senate, in fact, picked up a couple seats. But there was something historic that went on uh, in the uh, election as well. Uh, there are 125 women in the United States Congress, which is a historical high. Now, there are 535 members of the House and United States Senate combined, so 125 is not half of 535, so we have lots more to do. Nonetheless, let's take credit for the fact that we are at a high watermark of women being represented in the United States Congress. Uh, for the first time, a Native American congresswoman was elected, two Muslim com- congresswomen were elected, and the very first pediatrician in the history of the United States of America was elected to the Congress of the United States. Oh, that's not enough. <laughs> I'll, ex- I'll take it. Uh, so Dr. Kim Schreier, she's from Washington State. She a uh, general pediatrician. Uh, never ran for public office before, never did anything really political before. It was in private practice, uh, has an 11-year-old son, and uh, after the 2016 election decided that she was going to do something, that she wasn't going to, that why not her? And so she mounted a campaign uh, in a Republican-held district uh, in, in Washington State. It was, it's an interesting district, sort of suburban and rural in, in many places. Had been represented uh, for a long time by a former uh, sheriff, Republican sheriff, uh, and uh, ran against a longtime uh, uh, well-known Republican in Washington State. She ran ads as a pediatrician talking about uh, youth suicide and the need to do something about youth having access to guns because the youth suicide uh, rates in the district were too high. So if you think about that for a second, she ran on a gun control message, gun violence prevention message, in a Republican district. So even for people who are not political consultants, she's violating like every orthodoxy of (laughs) politics. By doing that. And she won. She won because she spoke about it as a pediatrician, and her voice was so credible and authentic and persuasive because she was not coming at it from a partisan politics or even a kind of parochial interest in gun rights or Second Amendment debate or any of that kind of stuff. She was like, we need to have less kids killing themselves with guns because I know what that means because I've seen it myself. And that power of that message was incredibly successful. She was. Um, very successful. We're working with her on all kinds of legislation. I'll tell you, it is really fun to have a member of Congress that you don't have to explain anything to. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it has occurred that our folks have gone into meetings and um, started having conversation about feet. Nope, pediatrics, not podiatry. (laughs) 
So she gets it, 100%, easy. You don't even have to talk about it. I don't have to persuade her about the need for immunizations or appropriate payment in Medicaid or any of those things. She's 100% all the way there. We're very excited to have her there. If you're interested in running for Congress, uh, what are you waiting for? Come on, let's <laughs> bring it, bring it. We got to do it. Okay. We have other pediatricians in high places, uh, uh, and I think this is important on the federal government side, the executive branch side of the House. Um, the second uh, highest-ranking person at the Department of Health and Human Services, the Assistant Secretary for Health, is Admiral Brett Giroir. He is a pediatric intensivist. He's fantastic. Uh, he is a pediatrician through and through. Uh, the the uh, new head of the Maternal Child Health Bureau uh, is named, uh, named Dr. Michael Warren, pediatrician. Uh, and Diana Bianchi, who is the head of the National Institute for Child Health and Human Development, uh, is a pediatrician. Uh, there are others. I just picked three here at the highest. But it's important for, because the federal government works best when pediatricians are running pieces of it. And so uh, uh, we have pediatricians in high places who are helping us out. Uh, Dr. Joua, Admiral Joua, is a um, very humble person. And you would never know how much work he's actually doing uh, in there to, to advance um, the needs of children. So as we approach the 116th, we have a lot of work to do. Um, we're coming up on an election year, so things are going to slow down as, as, as partisan and, and electoral politics kind of take, take the lead. But we've got big bills to reauthorize. We have to uh, CAPTA, the Child Abuse Prevention Treatment Act, the uh, PAPA, Pandemic and All-Hazard Preparedness Act. Pediatric subspecialty loan repayment program needs funding. We have an autism uh, bill that needs to be redone. Emergency medical services for children reauthorization. Newborn screening saves lives. Child nutrition. Uh, we got to fund the federal government. Um, that's not always been so easy in the last couple, a few years, but we've had really success in important increases at CDC and NIH and FDA and SAMHSA, et cetera. We think we can get over-the-counter drug reform done, uh, particularly a cough and cold medicine. We've got immigration to work on. We can talk more about that. I'll talk more about gun violence and access in a second. So the agenda is broad, but we know we can still do it. Uh, we, can, we can get some things accomplished. Okay, so let me dig into a couple of areas uh, more deeply. I'm going to talk a little bit about access to uh, care, and then uh, I'm going to dig into um, injury prevention. So those are going to be the two sort of, I think, big topics that we need to, to stay first. I could have picked any number. We could talk about vaping. We could talk about opioids. We could talk, we, there are any number of big topics, but I'm going to drill into two for you this morning. Um, <laughs> now that the uh, sort of to be or not to be question is passed in Congress about the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid, we do not expect to have significant health care bills in this Congress. Um, the, there's just no, they don't agree on anything in the House and Senate, and, uh, and the House doesn't agree with the White House, on, agrees with the White House on even less. And so uh, there's not going to be a big legislative push. However, that does not mean that the threats to basic access for children and families is over. And so the administration has a number of proposals in play uh, designed to limit access to care and the programs that we care about. So one is uh, a, a series of activities try to undermine the marketplaces that were built under the Affordable Care Act. So these, there's these new novel association health plans that don't have any real benefits design uh, minimum uh, minimums. Uh, short-term limited duration insurance plans, which I can barely say because it's, these are the junk plans that we 
were highlighting when we were lobbying for the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2009 as the problem we were trying to solve. And so now we're trying to bring these back, but they have a different name now, so I guess that's better. Um, uh, deep uh, uh, waivers at the states to block grant change, uh, et cetera. Uh, and then litigation strategies. There's one case. There's many ACA cases still working their way through the courts, but there's one big one that got a lot of coverage in Texas where they struck down the Affordable Care Act. That'll work its way up uh, on appeal, et cetera. And then on the Medicaid and CHIP programs in particular, the 1115 waivers will be the mechanism that they will use to try to impose work requirements, uh, lockouts if you don't reapply fast enough, drug testing, reduce benefits for 19 and 20-year-olds, block grants per capita caps, big, huge uh, changes in this way. <laughs> this is sort of a whack-a-mole exercise, right? You, just, you, you, you sprint in circles trying to stop bad ideas from coming all over into the handful of states are working on this and a handful of states are working on that. And at the federal level, there's not much that we can do except for to support the work of our chapters across the country in beating back these legislative initiatives or fighting off governors who are interested in doing that. The other thing that we can do aside from direct advocacy is litigation strategies. And so uh, litigation strategies come to mind immediately when you hear, read headlines that the administration thinks that they can administratively block grant Medicaid. Now, I'm not licensed in anywhere, so I don't have a, I'm not doing any legal analysis anymore, but the idea that there is an administrative authority to block grant Medicaid is legally dubious. <laughs> Uh, nonetheless, um, that, not, that doesn't mean that, that it will not be attempted. So this, let me just show you one week of articles in the New York Times. This was in March. Judge, blo judge blocks Medicaid work requirements in Arkansas and Kentucky. U.S. judge strikes down rule allowing skimpy health insurance plans. Uh, that's the short-term limited duration plans or the junk plans. Trump's small business health insurance plan struck down. That's association health plans. So that week they had a hard week on the administrative proposals list. So I, th I think we have to stay at this. This requires effort. This is an intensity of focus in order to make sure that nothing happens. <laughs> That's a hard advocacy ask, right? Because you just, you just like, work very hard to maintain the status quo. But I think on these administrative proposals, that's really our work. Uh, the, the courts are taking care of some of this for us, uh, but, but the waivers pieces are still working their way through, and we're going to have to work hard on that. Uh, I, I, I think that uh, the law is on our side here, that the, the, um, the 1115 program in Medicaid is really a, a waiver program by its own definition in statute, is a waiver program designed to improve access to care, to increase populations who have access to increased services, or their, their experiments in order to improve access. None of the things that they're being used for at this moment actually would do anything but restrict access, and some significantly. So I think the law is on our side. That doesn't mean that, that we can rest or, um, or, or um, be careful, because I think um, one of these could slip through along the way. Okay, on to injury prevention. As I mentioned at the very opening of my comments, I think that uh, injury prevention advocacy has been right along uh, as a core aspect of uh, pediatrics from the very beginning in the same way that uh, immunizations have. I would say almost the two things 
would go side by side. Uh, that that uh, basic uh, injury prevention activities have been part of it, whether it's poison control centers or poison prevention, really for almost from the early days, the 20s and 30s, people were worried about uh, uh, poisonings and the creation of control, poison control centers, et cetera, all sort of basic stuff. Uh, we have focused a lot on injury prevention over the last 50 years and made huge strides. We've also um, focused on social determinants of health and other kinds of um, non-communicable disease work, tobacco, et cetera. But the, the data on injury prevention, I think, the strides we have made there are starting to flatten. And so uh, I think we need to, it's time to, to take a fresh look. The, 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 the categories do shift, though. We've been working on uh, safe sleep for a long time, but then all of a sudden we have laundry packets uh, to deal with. Um, uh, I know there's at least one adolescent medicine expert in the room here, and so maybe after you could explain why <laughs> an adolescent would want to eat one of these things and put it on YouTube. Um, uh, uh, the cinnamon thing, I can maybe, uh, but um, but small babies, toddlers especially, are eating these things. Very dangerous. Okay, uh, strangulation from window blinds, high-powered magnets. You know, sometimes sometimes um, tech, uh, uh, invention. We have to chase down new ideas that come down. Uh, and furniture tip-overs stay with us uh, and uh, hurt a lot of kids. And so the 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 bucket of issues um, sometimes changes along uh, along the way. We are always needing new data. We always need new research on what kind of interventions are the most successful uh, to reduce uh, injury prevention. So research is always key in the public health piece of this. And CDC and CPSC are the two agencies that are necessary. And as we, we saw last week when we were talking about, about the, um, the rock and play, or, uh, that, that was an interesting interplay between the data collection of the injuries and the regulatory agency in charge of, 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 uh, of what a recall would look like. And sometimes one side needs a nudge. <laughs> so let's look at some data. Uh, this is uh, fatal unintentional, can you see that okay? Uh, fatal unintentional injuries among US children ages zero to 19 by gender from 81 to 2017. So from 81 to, let's say, 2013, 14, that curve is where you want it to be going. And then you start to see it flatten and rise. This is worrisome and, uh, and, and is worth uh, some attention here. Uh, this un unintentional injury, uh, fatal unintentional uh, injuries is not evenly distributed across the country and so I think it's important to say that even though where you look at those overall trend lines, uh, there are some places where uh, there's a lot more of this than others. I think this is multifactorial and complicated, but I think it's important to know it's not even. This is the same data broken out by race, ethnicity. I'm sorry if those curves are hard to see, but the top one is the yellow one, uh, and that this is rate per uh, 100,000. American Indian and Alaska Native kids are disproportionately impacted by uh, unintentional, in, unintentional um, injuries that result in death. Uh, African American kids uh, as well 
uh, disproportionately impacted. So you can see that there's particular populations. So it's not geographically dispersed evenly, and it's not dispersed across race, race ethnicity. And the leading causes uh, of death in uh, children ages 1 to 9, this is 2015 to 2017 data. Uh, this is CDC data. Unintentional injuries is 34% of it. Uh, suicide and homicide make up the top three. So almost 60% of deaths in uh, children 1 to 19 are unintentional injuries, suicide, and homicide. You have cancer or other diseases uh, you know, sort of working their way down the list. But if, if you were thinking about resource allocation, uh, where would you focus your energy most? Unintentional injury would be would be the focus. I always know I'm doing good when people take pictures of my slides. So, uh, so I'll pause uh, to make sure that that, I'll share them with you too. But it's always a marker of you're saying something somebody didn't know. Uh, all right, let's break down the unintentional injuries then. So motor vehicles by far uh, are still uh, um, the biggest. Uh, traffic fatalities, um, almost 3,800. Uh, uh, but then look at this homicide and suicide numbers. Does that surprise you? Yes. Compared to poisoning, compared to suffocation, I mean, all the other things we care so deeply about, 2,700 children died by homicide, ages 0 to 19. Looking at the suicide death, this is the, mo this is the one. This is the one that gives me chills every time I see it. This is the one that uh, is an emergency. Uh, if you look at teenage suicides, uh, those curves are going straight up. And if, if you have a, um, a gun, uh, your success rate is much higher. There's something happening here. And, uh, and this, to me, is we need to understand it, and we need to intervene in it as fast as we can. Moving down the, the scale here, this is the dark portion of the talk. I'll climb out of this eventually. But, uh, uh, let, let's get to drownings. Um, Unintentional drowning death rate in U.S. infants ages 0 to 19 by gender. Uh, boys are higher than girls. Um, but in 2017, 913 children, 0 to 19, died by drowning. Drowning deaths are not distributed evenly across race ethnicity either. Uh, if for, in the 1 to 4 age group, that yellow bar might be hard for you to see. Um, American Indian Alaska Natives dramatically disproportionately affected uh, by drowning. Um, and then as you move, um, as the kids get older, the disproportionate impact moves towards African-American population. On to uh, sudden unexplained infant death. Same thing with the overall curve. If you look from 1990 to 2000, you had a pretty good, uh, you're driving the, the curve down uh, in good. And then uh, you can see when back to sleep really uh, as a campaign uh, and sleep positioning became uh, important awareness that was broad ranging. 
um, reduced overall um, deaths. There was also some differentiation of SIDS from other causes, uh, um, et cetera. But if you look at the curves now where we are, we're flat for years. Um, we're not driving down these rates um, in the way that we can or have been historically. And if you look at the unknown cause uh, curves and the accidental, accidental suffocation in bed, um, uh, those curves are increasing. This is also geographically uh, not distributed evenly, which is this one is harder for me to understand why these rates would be uh, different. Um, this different, there's a threefold increase in some states. Um, but uh, um, something we need to understand better. Okay, so go back to drowning. So what I've done is shown you a whole bunch of scary data. Now, how do we intervene in this data? So we, let's take drowning as sort of a, a kind of a, a good um, example of something that, is, that we can get our mind around and try to intervene in in a comprehensive way. So we now know that we can do something about it. From, 81 to 17, from 1981 to 2017, declines by 67%, but the curves start to flatten. And now we know from recent data that drowning is the leading cause of unintentional injury fatality in children one to four. Number one, uh, and as I said, substantial variation across geographic areas, mostly having to do with where water is. Right, mm -hmm. uh, so the, uh, and, you know, it's pools in some places, it's lakes in others, it's rivers. Everybody's got a toilet, though. Everybody's got a bucket of water. Everybody's got a bathtub. I mean, um, sixty percent of drowning deaths occur outside of swim time. So this is when families are at high alert because they know that their children are in the water, and so they've got their all well, sunscreen, you know, all the stuff that people do. Um, but that's not even half of the times when children drown. So AAP, then we take this data and we do we find the interventions and we um, work on uh, um, uh, sort of what are what are evidence-based interventions that we can recommend and then we issue a policy statement. So earlier this year we issued a policy statement. Here's a good quote: The AAP lays out strategies to protect children each stage of their life. New parents are advised to be vigilant at bath time and to empty all buckets and wading pools immediately. All children should learn to swim, and children and teens should wear life jackets while near open bodies of water. Teens can learn CPR and other water safety skills. So you take the data, you gather up the interventions, uh, you produce the policy statement, and then you do the public awareness campaigns and um, tools for pediatricians. So we have produced an ages and stages sort of um, infographic for every, every age and stage. Um, this one is probably hard for you to see. Uh, this one is for the infant, water safety tips for new parents. Uh, for the toddler, is your baby walking? And some more um, tailored content there. Here's another one for toddler. Do you have a curious toddler? Uh, as, they get, as they go a little older, can your child swim? Uh, and so again, infographic kind of notion, simple, clear, um, uh, reading level appropriate. Then we get into the teens, um, water safety for teens, uh, some data, and um, some interventions. These are available to all of our members. They're available on healthychildren.org. We have a whole set of content on healthychildren.org just about water safety uh, and drowning prevention activities. And so, and so then we get to work.
Uh, in places where pools are the leading cause, this is another kind of infographic that we've done about pool safety. Uh, if you own a home with a pool or are visiting a home with a pool, take steps to protect children from drowning. Uh, again, this is in swim time and not in swim time. Pool safety is uh, an advocacy opportunity as well. Uh, many jurisdictions, not enough, but many jurisdictions uh, have mandatory fencing requirements around pools. That's a fairly simple thing that jurisdictions can do that has a really important um, impact. And so thinking about the advocacy agenda that flows out of these. So you have the data, the policy, the, the interclinical intervention and public awareness raising, and then the advocacy agenda. You see in that arc? Okay, so let's t let me focus then on one small, uh, one additional aspect of injury prevention, which is gun violence prevention. Uh, really important piece here. Obviously, uh, I showed you the homicide and suicide statistics. Every day in the United States, 83 children are injured or killed. 83 children are injured or killed uh, by a firearm. Much more injured than killed, thank goodness, but way too many shot. Uh, it is a leading cause of death in adolescents 15 to 19. As I said, it's, it's higher in those populations than motor vehicles. And we have begun to believe that we can't do anything, that, that we, there is, there's nothing that you can do in places where, uh, where, where um, firearms are a routine part of life. There are hunters, there, there are people... Um, the, the number of people who have firearms is very high. That, 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 that's a normal thing. So is there anything that we can do uh, to do something about this? Are there any, are there any interventions that, that will work? Or can we even talk about it? You know, can, we, can we do more than hand out gun locks in the clinic or talk to people about safe storage, which we should absolutely do? Uh, this is impossible for you to read. But what I, what I, um, the point I was making here in this slide is a larger point from the Kim, Dr. Kim Schreier, member of Congress, example, which is public opinion about common sense uh, gun safety, gun violence prevention measures is changing. There's a shift happening. And then for the first time, candidates um, that were backed by the NRA lost in 2018. Uh, people were successful in campaigns like Dr. Schreier talking about background checks and common sense gun violence prevention measures. And so there is something shifting uh, in, in the political will here, and I think that's important. Uh, I'm not sure where we're all going to go, um, but, but I, I think the conversation where we uh, um, have a mass shooting or some big notorious event, couple-day headline, and then nothing happens, the ground is moving. Slower than we would like, but moving. We think then that the, the way to get at this is like every other public health intervention. So what we need is research, dollars for research, to figure out what interventions like fencing around pools, like bicycle helmets, like car seats, uh, can, can be uh, used to reduce the rates of injury and death associated with firearms. Uh, we we want to do this in the same way that we do everything else. CDC has prevented been prevented by law from researching gun violence since 1996, uh, but they have said that if Congress gives them money, they will do it. They will do gun violence prevention research. And so uh, Dr. Redfield is the head of the CDC. He said to us directly, uh, to the president of the academy and me in a meeting, 
that if he received money from Congress to do gun violence research, he would do it right away. Uh, now, we had another conversation about why do you have to have new money, and don't you have a lot of money already, and can't you just take some of the money that you have? <laughs> but, you know, I, you know uh, I'll take what I can get. Um, I think they, they, if they can get new money, uh, they will do it. And so AAP led an organized effort of 166 groups, including the AMA, the APHA, many, many groups, medicine, public health, um, et cetera, uh, and, and coalesced, coalesced around a number that we think Congress should give CDC $50 million uh, to start gun violence prevention research specifically. Uh, this, is, this is a big coalition ask. I am more optimistic about us getting this money this year than I have been in a decade. There is a possibility that this could happen. Uh, the, the, the notion of studying uh, the issue is not abhorrent in the United States Senate. It is enthusiastically welcomed in the Congress, at least at the leadership levels. And so there's some, there's some, there's a path forward here. We can talk about the specifics of that if you'd like. But I think generating the political will for this is the, our task now, so that uh, every member of Congress understands that that's what we need. In order to do that, we made this the issue for the 2019 Legislative Conference. We had 325 pediatricians on Capitol Hill last month. Uh, to ask for this. We want $50 million uh, in new research and, uh, and common sense policies like background checks to prevent children from gun violence. Uh, th this was uh, the biggest legislative conference in the history of the American Academy of Pediatrics. In addition to the 320 people up on Capitol Hill, there was a, a push outside so that members all over the country were emailing and calling at the same time so that we could generate some real excitement. Uh, I'm very proud um, of our asks. I think they are uh, they get us out of partisan politics uh, and get us right back into what we know how to do, which is talk about what children and adolescents need in order to be well. It's a public health and medical approach. It's not a political approach. It's not a debate about the Second Amendment. Uh, it's a it's a it's an approach that that you as experts in child health can articulate like no one else. And when you say it, it doesn't raise the kind of flags. It can, it can get us out of the polarized political debate. The, the, the credibility and authenticity of, of doctors who care for children is second to none. And so if, if that voice is coming um, from that perspective, it can get us out from under some of the ugly fights. The House already passed a background checks bill. We supported that, H.R. 8. Um, I'll tell you a funny story. The, the Washington office of AAP has 17 staff, and we have an internship program. And so residents come and do advocacy month with us and advocacy rotation with us. And at the time that the, um, the bill was moving through Congress, one of the um, uh, interns that was with us that month was a medical student named Ryan Lyon. And um, I, I like Ryan Lyon a lot. turns out he is a very, very tall guy. And so we said, there is a press conference about H.R. 8 today. And what we want you to do is put on a white coat and go be in it. <laughs> and so there is Ryan Lyon uh, in the back uh, 
Um, there, a Washington office intern, standing proud and strong in his white coat. It's totally fake. It's like a costume store white coat, too. Like it's a, it's a, uh, like a Halloween costume store, you know, kind of thing. Um, it looks good on pr- the pictures, which is all that matters. Uh, the, he is in every picture, including with the Speaker of the House. Uh, there are many. This happens to be Gabby Giffords. Um, there, there. But he's in. And so I asked him, I said, Ryan, does your mother know that you were in all these pictures. She, he said, yeah, she knows. <laughs> she knows. Uh, so that was HR 8. We need to get some work done in the Senate. But So $50 million to the CDC and a background checks bill. I mean, we're going to work on those two things uh, this year. Uh, our work is not going unnoticed. This was a particularly touching um, tweet that uh, Gabrielle Giffords sent uh, on the day that we were up on the Hill. Children are our futures for pediatricians. Keeping them safe is their life's work. Hundreds of doctors stormed Capitol Hill today in support of gun safety measures like research and background checks. I'm proud to stand with them. So I, that, that's, a, that's an important thing to me. I remember when uh, Congresswoman Giffords was in Congress um, before she was shot at a Safeway. And so uh, we're, we stand with these folks and are happy to work with them. The next step for us, as if we follow the drowning model, we're going to work on some policy. We're going to work on some clinical interventions and a public awareness campaign. And so the, the clinical interventions and public awareness piece is coming together in a meeting very soon at the beginning of May. Uh, uh, AAP has launched a gun safety and injury prevention initiative. Uh, we funded this. The board of directors allocated a half a million dollars of AAP resources to fund this. Uh, we were joined by the De Beaumont Foundation with some additional dollars, and we will have a big uh, summit uh, on May 6th and 7th at AAP headquarters. This is really unique for us. We have public health, the religious community, the business community with cops and mayors, uh, pediatrics, uh, other kinds of medicine there. It is really a, a diverse group of experts coming together to see, like, what can we agree upon? that we can ramp up in the absence of additional research and all that. I'm really excited about the possibility for this. So stay tuned for what I hope will be some impactful and practical uh, tips going forward. So let me stop here um, by just uh, reminding you what I started to remind you in the beginning, that uh, the power of people who care about children when their voice is united uh, is m- perhaps more powerful than you think. It is more impactful. Uh, we can move the ball in any sort, in all sorts of ways. Uh, we can make a difference. We don't need any credit about it. We don't need any spotlight about it. We don't need to be on CNN every day. Uh, but we do need to be moving forward. It's part of the profession. It's part of what children need. They don't have super PACs, right? They just have us. And when we re- when we unite. As people who care about kids, uh, we can make a very big difference. I think we did that in the last Congress. Uh, we have big challenges ahead of us, but we always do. And so, and we, we have a big voice, and we can, we can use that voice towards the next Congress and this administration in the next couple of years. We can use that voice um, pointed at state capitals, uh, certainly here in this state uh, and, and every other state, and then in every other kind of way school boards and community groups, and the work that you do every day in this hospital to advocate for the children that you take care of. It's really important. Um, I am honored and privileged to be able to stand alongside you as you do it, and I'm really appreciative of the chance to come talk to you about it this morning. Thank you very, very much. for that. That's my niece, Avery. 
Aww. Yeah, she's an Apgar 11. <laughs> Hi. Um, Morning. Do you think that we're doing enough to educate parents on these health and safety issues that you yeah. Uh, the question, in case you couldn't hear, is on the on the injury prevention issues. Are we partnering with parents? Are we educating parents? You know, what what is the what is the awareness of that? And I think uh, I think injury prevention is not distinct from other kinds of public health issues, where uh, where if you let up off the gas, things come back. Um, we the, this is the perfect example of that in my mind is measles. Uh, you know that that if you we we are seeing what happens when vaccine rates drop, then the vaccine preventable diseases come back. I think when we reduce our sustained effort on injury prevention of all kinds, then it it comes back, or it, or it flattens. I think that's that's point number one. So I think we, yes, public awareness. Uh, if you th- if for people who remember vividly when back to sleep was a sort of and sleep positioning data was really clear, and we pulled out every effort we could think of to try to back to sleep, no, get the stuff out of the crib, all, no bumpers, and all that sort of stuff. When that was really a game-changing kind of set of messages, you looked at what happened there. So I, I think, um, number one, yes, it, it, vigilance is, is required on these issues. Number two, I think we can get more sophisticated about high-yield interventions. So there's the sort of, in addition to telling families that laundry packs are really appealing to small children and your adolescent. <laughs> uh, I don't have a solution for that one. But, uh, but in addition to telling families these things are really appealing to small children, you can make them harder to open. Right? So... So the public awareness piece is definitely part of it, you know, raising the awareness of parents on issues. But there's all sorts of other interventions that you can do uh, that can reduce morbidity and mortality with, in the absence of perfect understanding by parents of, of what's happening. So the helmets, seat belts, car seats, all of those things are sort of interventions that, don't, that, don't, um, that you just sort of bake in. Right? So I think both is my answer. Yeah. Um, you gonna tell us about the adolescents? No, no. Okay. I told you I'm failing my uh, take-home final on my two teenagers right now. So. <laughs> um, I did want to thank you so much for coming, Mark. I wanted to actually share with the audience. This is more of a comment than a question to you. Some of the proud work that we're doing here at Chad within our residency program, with the support of the Royal Community Pediatrics Program. So the rest of the day, Mark is actually spending with our residency leadership team and our residents to really. Um, foster this idea of advocacy as part and parcel of who we are as pediatricians. What many of the faculty may not know is that over the course of this past year, we've developed, um, along with our colleagues in Vermont and Maine, the Northern New England Advocacy Collaborative. And so we are working really closely. We are three small states with similar demographics, similar public health challenges. So we're working across the three residency programs with Carolyn leading the charge across the residency programs, and Steve and his colleagues at the AAP of our three chapters uh, really leading a cooperative uh, um, 
program to really not only just do teaching, and Jess got to go to LegCon this year as part of this. We brought Mark here to come talk about it. Um, if those of you are going to PAS, we're going to pre be presenting our work on Saturday afternoon, so we're pretty excited about the work we're doing. I don't know if Steve or Kathy Sacker yeah, wants great. to say anything more about kind of that collaborative, or Carolyn, who's I think hiding in the back. I see her. <laughs> so we're going to about pick up on the, the, the preventing gun violence to kids, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later today. Um, Skip Berrien is here in the audience here with us today. He's a pediatrician and a member of the New Hampshire House and leads a group of legislators who have been advocating for children in the, in the New Hampshire legislator, legislature for years. And so it really is all about how do we work together and how do we, as pediatricians, articulate from our position what we're seeing, what we're understanding, and what we know needs to happen for kids collaboratively with our partners. So Skip is here today. Sylvia is here today um, representing families. Um, Pediatricians are part of the voices, but really families are even more powerful than we are. Mm, much of no the doubt. And so Sylvia is going to join us um, as a representative of New Hampshire Family Voices um, uh, and uh, just one of the partnerships that we're developing. Okay. So let me, let me take a Organizations like the Academy and others, which hew to the conventions of advocacy, which says, well, we don't want to appear too partisan, or we don't want to, we don't want to be accused of a bias. Can we play hardball well enough to actually get the job done? Yeah. How do we do that? No, we are doing it. I, I, yeah, I, that's a great question. I, I think because. Uh, is that a softball? You might, you might. You, they, they, yeah, no, I think no. I, was, I, I thought you were teeing it up for me. No, good. So, um, so I, I have a twenty-minute monologue already for this. But so, let me, this is a, this is a really important. The Academy of Pediatrics is a five hundred one c three organization. We are not a charitable nonprofit according to the IRS tax laws. What that means is that we are not able to campaign or uh, or uh, participate in elections. Uh, or, or engage in partisan politics. That, that is a decision. Many medical societies who are structured like us also have a different uh, PAC and uh, a political action committee and p p policy you know, campaigning political side. The board of directors of AAP has for a long time uh, at, and at regular intervals decided not to do that and to keep going in, in the way that we, we have. So what, what does that mean for us? Um, the formulation that I, that I like the best about this is that AAP is nonpartisan but unabashedly pro-child. So we're in no way constrained from calling out what needs to be called out uh, by, any of the, by any kind of rules or, or adherence to a nonpartisan approach. And I think that we should be very proud of the work that the Academy uniquely led last summer when uh, the separation of children and families uh, occurred. Over the course of 10 days last summer, uh, this is really when, when the peak of the understanding of what was happening on the border was capturing national attention. Colleen Kraft, the president of, of the AAP, did 150 interviews in 10 days. And over and over and over, she said that separation of children and family, separation of children from their families is government-sanctioned child abuse because 
we know what happens in traumatic experiences to children's brains when they're separated from the buffering ex experiences of trauma from when, the, when their caregiver cannot provide that, that comfort. Right? We, know, we know that you're harming children's brains by doing this. To, to neglect them in this way is child abuse, and it must stop. So I don't know what else we could, I mean, that, that's as, about as, you know, we are not on the Christmas card list of the White House. <laughs> They know her name. Okay. So, but, so what I'm going to say is I think the, and I could tell a million stories about that 10-day period. Um, can I, well, I have time, right? I can tell a little bit. So, uh, okay. Uh, um, so, uh, at one point, this was, this was, things were really sort of ramping up, and, and Dr. Kraft was doing interview after interview for a period of time, we had three full-time staff on her. There were people who were receiving media calls. There was another person who was processing media calls. And then there was an actual staff person with her on these because she would hang up the phone on, uh, from NPR and do a live shot on CNN and then go back on MSNBC. And finally, like, no more MSNBC. We've covered that one. Okay, then we're going to do this station and that radio station. I mean, it was sort of like this for days and days and days. In the midst of it all, she, Dr. Kraft calls me up and says, I was on the interview and I just got this phone call and I, I just got this voicemail and I just want you to hear it. And so I said, okay. Uh, she was in Texas and I was in, in uh, Washington, D.C. And I, she taught me, I didn't know on the iPhone that you could text message a voicemail to somebody. <laughs> the president of the Academy of Pediatrics taught me that. Uh, so she sends as, a text, as an attachment to a text message as a voicemail and it's a voicemail from... Oprah. <laughs> Hello, Dr. Kraft. It's Oprah Winfrey calling. I would like to talk to you about what I saw you say on CNN about this being government-sanctioned child abuse. I'm on the road. Am I on the road? Where am I? Yeah, I think someone, okay. Yeah, well, I'm on the road, and call me back, and uh, uh, yeah, call me back. Uh, it's Oprah. Bye. <laughs> God. So... Anyway, that's a pretty high level of attention. It's a funny story. It, that doesn't mean much. Except the next day, Colleen, Dr. Kraft calls me again. This is a Saturday now. And she said, she's texting me, sorry. And she says, I'm on the phone with someone. I think it's, I think it's Oprah's producer, but I'm not really sure. Her name is Gail King. <laughs> so you're on the phone now. So it's a Saturday morning. I'm at my house. And I said, CBS this morning, big outlet, big outlet, say yes, say yes. You know, like, not Oprah's producer, her best friend, she's on stage. So, uh, okay. And this is just the madness of how this all works. And then that was Saturday, and on Monday, she was on the border with Gail King and CBS this morning. So Oprah called Gail, Gail called her, this, this, this is how it works in the real world. So um, long story long is to say, um, is to say, we are in no way inhibited from calling out what needs to be called out. The only thing we're inhibited from doing is saying, defeat this person in the next election, or someone else should be elected in the next election. We are not afraid uh, to take on and, and call out what needs to be called. We have confronted this administration for the, the duration of this administration in, on immigrant children policy in the same way that we confronted the Obama administration. We weren't so happy with what the Obama administration was doing on the border either. 
And so this, this is a huge problem. It is a terrible thing for what's happening to children. I've been to the border myself twice. Um, it is, it's really hard to talk about if, when you see it in real, in, in, with your own eyes. The caricature of what's going on down there that you get in the news is in no way like what is actually happening and what's happening to, to families there. Um, I could tell lots of stories about that. But, um, so I, think, I don't think that we suffer from a lack of boldness. I think we, there is a fair tactical debate to be had whether or not we should get a pack and mix it up and try to elect different people. That is a good faith discussion that we should absolutely have. In the meantime, though, I think we speak in simple declarative sentences based on the expertise in child health that our members have about what kids need and let the politics fall where it may. Thank you. Yeah.